0: All right, well, where we've been thus far, you may recall, is in our study of Exodus, we're looking at how God is on a missionary journey to reveal himself, to make himself known in the world. And so the book of Exodus introduces us to a whole bunch of themes and concepts that later biblical revelation flesh out and, and build upon. Um, We saw that the great purpose of the Exodus event was that God's power and name and glory would be manifest in the world, but also in his people. We saw that salvation is not just about getting out of Egypt, but about getting Egypt out of the people. We've seen that the book of Exodus is therefore a discourse or, or a lesson in, in what the point of salvation is. Okay, the, the book of Exodus is used routinely by, by liberation theologians and, and people who, who want to basically treat it as, as an emancipation proclamation, so to speak, uh, asserting human, human freedom from oppression and all that. I'm at the point in, in my biography of, of Ulysses Grant where, where Richmond has fallen, it, it, it's, it's a burning rubble heap and, and Lincoln came and visited just a couple days after it, was, it had fallen and so buildings are still smoldering and of course he's greeted by, by thousands of, of recently freed slaves and, and they're calling him Moses and they called him Moses and, and, and they've been brought out of Egypt, okay, that is not what Exodus is about. Exodus is not primarily about people getting liberated from slavery. It's about people who are in bondage to sin, bondage to the the tyrannical masters that govern this age, and how we are in love with our masters, and how we, in our hearts, long for the very things that harm us. And yet God, in his goodness and in his grace, reaches down and frees us from those masters. That's what salvation is about. But then we see that what happens in Exodus is that the people of God are freed from serving Pharaoh in order that they would serve the Lord. And the word to describe their relationship to Pharaoh as service is the same word that describes their relationship to the Lord. So we see this in the New Testament in Romans chapter 6 where we were formerly slaves to sin but now we are slaves to righteousness. Okay? When God saves a people, he is not just cutting off your he's not just cutting off the the chain that that connects your dog to the to the stake in the ground and Bye-bye, have fun, run free. He saves a people to be a people. And so when we are saved by Christ, we're transferred from a kingdom and we're transferred into a kingdom. That's exactly what Colossians 1 states about us, isn't it? That God in his mercy has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son. So to be saved, then, is to be under God's kingship. In relationship with him. Now this speaks profoundly to a common idea that, that still floats around. It was huge a few decades ago, but it's still out there, and that is the concept of free grace. Free grace theology, or or you may have heard its converse, Lordship Salvation. And that is the question is is it possible to be saved and have Christ not be your Lord? And the answer, according to the Bible, is a resounding no. For Jesus to be your Savior, He is your Lord. And so people who say that you can have a saving knowledge of Christ and have no repentance, and be living in open sin, even even ultimately disbelieve, repudiate the very profession of faith that you have, and still be saved, they have not really wrestled with the point of salvation as we see it even initially brought up in Exodus and fleshed out throughout Scripture to have Jesus as your Savior means that he is your Lord and that is the basis of the covenant that God has saved a people and that in light of his saving they are now to honor him and obey him and turn to him and the good thing is that the God we serve is not like the gods we fled from the gods who we fled from promise but deliver nothing they promise us the world and they take you you pursue the god of the american dream and what happens you burn yourself out you may attain a little bit of stuff but ultimately it all crashes down on are left with just a crown in your hand but our lord he promises life everlasting So the gospel of our God as presented in Exodus is that he is a kind master, a kind Lord. And if we would but obey his commands, he would be with us. And so this is what the people of Israel are learning. Again, they are just learning basic concepts. They've learned about the concept of the reality of sin and that there's a need for a substitute We've, they've learned in the covenant making ceremony of Exodus 19 that there's a concept of propitiation where God's anger at sin has to be dealt with. But there's also a concept known as expiation, which is the guilt and shame of our sin get washed away. We learn in this golden calf incident about the, the depths of our depravity. That it's only been 40 days and they're already returning to the idolatry they left behind. They're, they're breaking the commandments, and, and the people have gone crazy. It's worse than spring break at Daytona Beach. And it's it's horrible. And you see the need for a mediator. And you see the work and role of a mediator. That the people are so contaminated that they can't even be the ones themselves to offer the sacrifice that would make atonement for their sins how's that for a sorry state and so this mediator then pleads on their behalf but now in this section as we're getting to the end of this little excursus that underscores the the role and importance of the tabernacle we see Moses take it one step further He's interceding for the people. In these these verses, we see four specific petitions that he makes. But what we're seeing is that these petitions are predicated upon an assumption that what we absolutely need is God's presence with us. The absolute number one thing we need in life is God's presence to be with us in fact Moses understands that what is essentially happening if God doesn't go with his people is that the very purposes of the exodus itself are undermined we need God and his presence now verse 2 and 3 state state what's going to happen and they sort of set set the stage for what follows And that is God tells them, look, I'm going to send an angel before you. And he's going to sort of clear clear the path ahead of you. He's going to take care of all the enemies that are there. And y'all go up and take possession of that land that I promised. And we get the idea that basically God is saying, okay, I made a promise. I'm going to get you there. I'm keeping it. But then I'm wiping my hands of you. He will not go with them. And the reason given is because they are a stiff-necked people. In other words, their sinfulness and his holiness are utterly incompatible. We must be transformed and changed if we are to be acceptable to a holy God. And these people are not. So it's for your safety that I'm not going to be with you. But it's interpreted rightly as a disastrous word. And right here, though, uh, what God offers the people, frankly, would get a shout for joy from most people. I would suspect most Christians would shout for joy at what God is offering them here. You know what God is basically offering them right here? To help them get what they want and then leave them alone. That is exactly what God is offering them. They want to get to where they want to go. They know there are people there they can't take care of. So God's going to wipe them away and get them there and then step back and leave them alone. And that is exactly what most people want out of God. They want God to be uninvolved and out of their life. Except occasionally, they want God to take care of a problem for them. Even Christians, we act like God is is just someone to go to when there's a problem. And you see it evidenced in the way we even pray and posture ourselves. We don't approach God unless we have a problem, but the rest of the time, stay out of my life. And Moses understands this is absolutely disastrous. Now here's where we have to understand that we are at a different vantage point in history. Okay, I do not want to give the misimpression that it's possible for us to relive or recreate the the total life circumstance of people who lived before Christ came. Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us that all of this stuff was written down as a a lesson for us, as as a warning to us as an example for us. So there are some lessons that we're going to derive. But here is is where we are just fundamentally at a different point. Here God has made a a threat, so to speak, to pull his presence back from the people. He's an ascending angel, but I'm staying back here. And, And brothers and sisters, I want you to know, and you have to proceed in the Christian life with this assurance. This is not a word that you will ever hear from God's mouth for you. You see, the fact of the matter is this is, pointing, this is pointing forward to something. And that something is going to be the work of Christ. And the reality and the glorious news we have is that Jesus came out of the grave. And because of that, we can say along with Paul in Romans 8 that neither life... Nor death, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor rulers, height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Okay? That is a fundamentally different covenantal stance. So we we are not at the point where you have to be afraid that God's going to kick you to the curb okay now we can we can say that God wasn't going to do that but God makes no such threats to his people in Christ Christ's coming makes a difference and so we can look back on these people and the lessons they teach us but it's from that posture that in Christ praise God the love that God has for us is inseparable so proceed in that hope but this Bible section does teach us about the pernicious effects of sin and what it means to abide in God's love in the sense of the experience of his good pleasure. God is holy. And those who worship him and approach him must be holy. So it sets the stage here that life without God's presence is a disaster even if you have all of the advantages and all of the ups and privileges that a good life can bring you it would be a disaster without the presence of the Lord so verses 7 through 11 then take you back and they're a parenthetical backdrop story that explain the what was going on with Moses and his life of communion with the Lord that will help us understand what comes to follow and it talks about this tent of meeting now you may Think back to chapter 25, that the tabernacle itself is called the tent of meeting. And it's the same expression as used here. So Moses has a little tent of meeting and God wants to build a tent of meeting. We just call it the tabernacle to differentiate. But the reality is that the tent of meeting is like Air Force One. Okay, is Air Force One a plane? Yeah. But if the president hops on a little Cessna, guess what that Cessna becomes? Air Force 1. Okay, it's the designation of the plane that the president is in. And so this is the tent in which God meets his people. So we'll notice first of all that this tent is far outside the camp. The text is specific that it's far away. Because God is not dwelling amongst his people. It's small and it's where Moses goes to talk with the Lord face to face as a friend. Isn't that amazing? that level of intimacy and in communion and brothers and sisters what we learn in in the new testament is that the experience of the old testament saints even Moses here is inferior to the experience of God and of Christ and of grace that we in the new covenant have isn't that amazing you can Boldly approach the throne of grace in prayer, knowing that God speaks with you as a friend. How would it shape your prayer life to speak to God like you talk to your friend? I love the prayers of Scripture, man, they're so real. There they, they are the high and exalted, the prayers that we think are fit for a cathedral. something like that but man i i just love how the people of scripture model praying earnest prayers real prayers and here in, in his first petition in chapter 33 verse 12 we see what moses says in his first petition he says that lord look see You've given me this job to do, but you haven't given me the tools I need to do it. Do you see sort of that, that what am I supposed to do here? You've given me an impossible task. He's, He's kind of exasperated. Look, you haven't told me who's going to be going with me. And what's interesting about this is it's in light of God having just said, I'm going to send an angel an angel as distinct and differentiated from the angel of the Lord that's been going it's as if Moses is saying I don't need just any some old angel just some old angel is is isn't enough I need you what's amazing here is that uh, the people are in mourning and Moses is in are saying look if I found favor in your sight I need you to show me your ways because I can't do this job on my own. You're telling me to just lead the people. I can't. He learned back in chapter 5, you may recall, when he initially goes into the throne room of Pharaoh, and we, we pointed out when we looked at the passage then, how he went off script. He went in there full of confidence, and by going off script, he got the beat down. And so he's learned a lesson. He can only go in God's power, but he needs to know God's ways. So how how does that affect how we live our lives? Do you try to do it in your power? Or do you recognize you can only do the tasks that God has assigned to you if you operate in his power? And unlike the people of Israel in chapter 20 or in chapter 32 they don't try to subvert the divine plan and make for themselves gods of silver and gold. Moses knows that the only hope he has for understanding God's ways is to get it from God himself. We've talked about it. Lauren mentioned it during his talk earlier that this has everything to do about revelation we are utterly and completely dependent upon God revealing himself to us in order for us to know anything about God and Moses is acutely aware of this this is why he needs God's presence with him because with God with him God will reveal himself to him so he can learn how to please God how to do the job that God has set before him. But most importantly, he wants to be pleasing to God. Moses has encountered the living God. First in a burning bush, then in conversation at Sinai. He has had multiple encounters with the living God. Okay, And, and here's the reality of the effect of encountering God. When you come face to face with the one by and for whom you were made and and your heart was created to be the throne of the living God and so your your heart then is is restless until you find its rest in your creator. So once you've come into, into relationship with that being, that's what you want. That's what Moses wanted. Every single petition centers around give me more of God. I want more of you, Lord. How many of us have just a completely different background? Or or we have a completely backward perspective. We don't pursue God because we want more of God. We pursue God because we 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 want our lives to be happy. Man, many of us don't even look forward to heaven to see Jesus. We look forward to heaven because we'll see loved ones. And God is just there. That that is the mindset of someone, frankly, who hasn't really encountered the living God. And Moses has. So he wants more of God. And there's power in his prayers. Have you noticed that, how God interacts with him? Do you you know the secret of a powerful prayer life? The secret of a powerful prayer life is not being sleep-deprived and hunger-starved. The secret of a powerful prayer life is to pray in accordance with God's Word, which Moses repeatedly does. Moses repeatedly brings up God's Word to God expecting great things of and from God. For example, how many of us have the audacity to be as bold as James tells us to in in James 1 when he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask. Because God gives graciously. Are you bold to ask for things? Confident that God gives graciously? Or do we hedge our bets? Now understand that Moses is praying boldly because he's encountered God and he knows God's character. And having tasted God's character, he wants to know more of God because the more he knows of God, the more of his radiant excellencies fill himself like like being warmed by a fire on a chilly night. And so Moses wants that. And so God says, I will be with you. And then in his second petition, Moses kind of backs up and he says, now, okay, don't, it's as if he's saying, don't play games with me. If you're, if you're, even though God had just said, I'll go with you. He says, if you're not going with me, don't send us up from here because this is where you are this is where we need to be but then he says something else he says how will the world know that we're any different from anyone else you alone your presence with us is what makes us who we are who defines who you are if i look at your life what are the important things to you what are the things that make you unique the things about you that you value, that you prioritize, that you really think, this is what makes me special. Where in there does it rank that you are a temple of the living God and that where you go, whether it's to church, to the bathroom, or to the mall, God. And that if God is not with me, then I am nothing. Where does that rank? How about as a church? Are we defined by the fact that God is here with us in our midst? For the people of the old covenant, because of God's presence with them, it was a source of shame when they were defeated by their enemies. And it's a source of shame for us with God in our midst when we're defeated by our enemies. And our enemies are not politicians who have policies that differ. Our enemies, really? You want to know what our enemies are? The divisive, sinful spirits that we bring in here with our flesh. When we, with our scandalous treatment of each other, make ourselves look shameful... It belies the fact that God is a God of unity and he has brought us together and forged a new humanity into one. It makes God look less glorious and less satisfying. But the fact of the matter is, the single criterion by which we should value and estimate our uniqueness as people and as a church is God's here. Have you ever been amongst the church where it's clear that God's not there? It doesn't matter how good their programs are. And a person. Have you ever had the joy of being in the presence of a person who, who you know, man, God is big to them? That's awesome. Let that be our defining characteristics. And what's amazing is God responds, you have found favor in my sight and he's going to save the people he says in in verse 17 he's gonna save the people he's gonna go with the people because he likes Moses this is covenant theology 101 we relate to God on the basis of our covenant mediator and because Moses was in good with God the people Moses represented We're in good with God. And brothers and sisters, you think God is pleased with Moses? How much more pleased do you think He is with His Son? Our mediator of the new covenant. Remember at His baptism, Jesus comes out, and what does Matthew 3, Luke 3, and Mark 1 say? What do they say? This is My Son. Actually, My beloved Son. You want to know why you are so safe? Why Paul can say that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ? Because God is so supremely pleased with his son. Our mediator is in tight with God. And because our mediator is in tight with God and we are in our mediator, we are secure. So because of Jesus... That's why we celebrate Jesus here. He's not just our example or role model. He's not just some poor sap who died. He's our king and our Lord, the one who has purchased redemption and he is enthroned forever, mediating on our behalf, and we are wrapped in his robes, covered in his blood, and so God views us with the same light that he views his son. So the people are saved here because of Moses. And we are saved from something far, far worse because of Jesus. And that is awesome. You may feel defeated. You may feel cold. You may feel like, like, I don't pray like Moses. I don't talk to God like a friend. And you should. And so start. But don't let it get you depressed and discouraged because you are secure in Christ. If by faith you are in Christ. And so as a, as a sign of God's pleasure in Moses and by implication his, his commitment to be with the people, Moses asks for an audacious thing. Show me your glory. Now he's seen God's glory many times. So what's he saying when he says show me your glory? He wants to view what ultimately no human alive can view. He wants God to show him as he is. He wants wants to take the full force of the sun, and it can't happen. And there's a precious promise. Did you know that even though God says here that no man can see my face and live, that the glorious hope that we have in Christ is that one day, according to 1 John, we will see Him as He is. And that's amazing. If if Moses, catching a bit of the afterglow, is, 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 is almost transported to almost ecstatic levels of euphoria, imagine what seeing God as he is will do for those who have loved him. It will be awesome. And so God reveals himself and he proclaims his name And it's interesting how his name, his name, the Lord, the Lord, and he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, expressing his absolute sovereignty and freedom. But in his absolute sovereignty and freedom, God could have said, I will destroy whom I will destroy and judge whom I will judge. He could have said that. But you know why he focuses on being gracious and merciful? Because he's a God whose disposition is to be gracious and merciful. A God who delights in showing mercy. He's a God who delights in revealing himself to those who seek him. And Moses does what is the rational response. The right response to coming and seeing and beholding the wonders of God. And that is he worships. What does it mean to worship? We say the word a lot. We do. But what does it mean? Lexically, it means to acknowledge someone's worth. But worship, in the biblical sense, is not simply coming and respectfully tipping the hat. It's not respectfully bowing the knee. It's not doing your duty of obeisance and, and paying homage to a, to a king that you really don't care about. God is not the IRS. The IRS doesn't care how you feel about paying your taxes as long as you pay your taxes. Okay? God is not that way with regards to worship. Our worship is the adoration and praise that comes from being thankful for being forgiven. You cannot worship unless you are thankful for being forgiven. And Moses here, he's a sinner, and the people are sinners. And God has just condescended to reveal himself as being merciful and forgiving. And Moses rightly worships and prays him. Brothers and sisters, every day we experience God's tender mercies to us. Do you worship? Do you praise him and adore him and savor him in his goodness? Treasuring him above all the little helps that he could give us and yet otherwise keep himself from us. He offers you more than solving your problems. He offers you himself. So brothers and sisters, as you leave, don't content yourself with prayers for God to simply solve your problems. Having problems solved is not the defining characteristic of the Christ-centered life. Having God with us. You need God's presence. And basking in his presence, you will see that everything else falls into proper order anyway. Let's pray.